Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning. If you are new or newer with us, my name's Kevin Perry. I'm actually the worship arts pastor here. And uh, always a joy to serve in this church, serving a little differently this morning. Got to admit, it's always a little awkward not to have a guitar on. Usually serve uh, musically every Sunday. And uh, this church is always very kind to me to bear with my goofiness as a rookie. So uh, always a joy to do this this morning. Hey, you know, sometimes just planning comes all together. You know, we just look like geniuses as far as church leaders planning, but really it's just happy coincidence. Today is just a, a great day. Everything just kind of lined up this weekend. Uh, we just sang Holy Spirit. And here's a little extra credit question to get us started this morning. Anybody know what today is on the Christian church calendar here in the West? The church Pentecost, extra credit, right over here. <laughs> Pentecost, the day in Acts 2, the day in Acts 2 where, where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells his people, his church, you know, the tongues of fire there with the, the disciples in Jerusalem. And it just so happens that today in our passage, we get to talk about the Holy Spirit. How about that? So buckle your seatbelts, hang on and turn to chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians this morning. Let me read, flip, swipe, tap, turn, whatever Bible you have. Chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between gifts, between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he, will, as he wills. That is our passage this morning, the word of God for the people of God. And if you haven't already prayed for me this morning, we just have to cover words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy, healing, miracles, tongues in our time together. So... <laughs> Can anybody empathize with me right now, please? So, you know, as we have gone along in 1 Corinthians, we've done things a little differently this time in this, this book, uh, a little differently than we ever have. And we've taken like, this is, I think, our fifth series in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And uh, we did Greener, we did Wedge, we did uh, Dethrone, we, did, uh, we skipped ahead and then came back with uh, Lynchpin. And the reason we could do that is because 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing this young church, and it's kind of the format that allowed us to do this. He's kind of going through this list of questions and issues, almost like a grocery list. That They've got all these issues that they're bringing to them, they post to them and questions, and Paul is going back and, and answering them one by one. And so here in chapter 12, we get a, a, new, uh, a new question that Paul is addressing, a new issue. And now the, the question isn't quoted in our Bible or in our text, but kind of looking ahead and pulling all that that I just read together and where it kind of heads, we can kind of work backwards to the question in a sense. Uh, you know, and just as a little, this is a little speculation, but I think with a pretty good high degree of confidence, we can come back and say that the question was something like this up there on the screen. 
that the Corinthians that somehow, some way asked Paul, said, Paul, is it not true that spiritual gifts show absolute proof of spiritual people? Or said another way, aren't spiritual gifts a good test for a person's spiritual condition? Now, let's remember the Corinthians' backstory. This is a, a young church. Probably at the time this is being written, it's less than five years old. I mean, this, this is a young church, and as we've talked about, in one of the most volatile cities on the planet. This is like Vegas on steroids times 10. And you got this young church and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. The spirit of God is at work. People are coming to Christ, but they're coming out of really wild backgrounds, pagan cultic activity backgrounds. It's a young church. And, and remember back in chapter, chapter one, Paul says on top of that, he says this young church like, and you guys are blessed with spiritual gifts. The spirit of God is going like wildfire in your midst. You are having an abundance of spiritual gifts. So Paul starts, in, I, I, starts out saying, I wanna help you guys. I wanna help you, you've been led astray, you've come from all kinds of backgrounds and places. So let's just, let me just help you with this issue, this issue of spiritual stuff and gifts and people. And so he tries to bring some clarity and some unity to this situation with two really loaded quotes, really loaded quotes. First there in verse three, look down at verse three. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Jesus is accursed. That's a strange phrase, right? Now, I don't think the problem there in Corinth was people were wandering around the new church just saying, Jesus is accursed, Jesus is accursed. You know, that word in, in, in the English, it kind of betrays how strong a statement this was. The word there in the Greek is anathema. Anathema, probably the best equivalent we have is to be damned to hell. That's kind of a strange phrase to attach to Jesus, right? So we really don't know exactly where this came from. The speculation, probably the best option is that where these people came from, their previous kind of pagan worship and cultic life, that maybe that was some kind of thing they chanted before they came to Christ. It's kind of a chant against this new Christianity. Who knows? We're not really sure. And it doesn't really matter because the strength of the point he's trying to make is in the contrast. Because he goes on to say, look there at the end of verse 3. That also, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And right there, that, that term for Jesus is Lord, now that's, that again, that is a loaded phrase in the English. Now it's kind of, I dare say, cliche for us. We hear it all the time. We see it on bumper stickers. But those two words in the Greek, kurios iesus. First of all, I just love that phrase because it immediately makes me think of Kyrie eleison, the 80s song. Mr. Mr. 1985, welcome to the real world. Uh, you'll be humming that all day long now. Kyrie eleison. So I always think of that. But no, kurios iesus, this was a power-packed phrase. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema of Israel, this prayer that the Jews made. They're in Deuteronomy 6. Hero, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, yeah, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, but remember that, that one of the translations of the Bible circulated in Jesus' time that he actually read from, and Paul was a Greek translation of the Bible. And they had the same word there, kurios, kurios, hero Israel, the kurios, our God, the kurios is one. Same word. Now, fast forward to Jesus in Matthew 26. Jesus does a little word study on this word. Remember, he does this little Bible study with the Pharisees. He says, hey, guys, remember back in Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, same word, kurios. Jesus is basically asking them, hey, fellas, can you not see that I'm the kurios here? And so this little loaded phrase becomes this, really, it's one of the earliest Christian confessionals we have. First Corinthians is 
early, before most of the New Testament is written, this becomes like one of the first confessionals of the, Christ, of the Christian movement. Jesus is Lord. Remember over in Romans 10, what does it say? If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. Power-packed phrase, Jesus is Lord. And I love that because it kind of, this one little two-word phrase marries the Old Testament with the person working Jesus. So amazing. So Paul is, is kind of making the point to them here. He's saying, look, <clears throat> don't, get, don't get this backwards, guys. It doesn't start with spiritual gifts. That's kind of putting the cart before the horse. But all who attest, all who attest and profess that Jesus is Lord, all who truly confess that Jesus is Lord do so by the Holy Spirit and attest to his presence in their lives. Get the order right. If you truly confess it, you have the Spirit and therefore you have gifts. Now, as the church, you have the Spirit as a believer and therefore you have gifts. There in your notes, I wrote down a few definitions of spiritual gifts. Everybody, there's, there's like no two definitions out there that are the same. So I went and looked at like two or three that uh, were pretty good uh, representations there in your notes uh, a god-given ability for service <clears throat> gracious bestowments on the church for building it and there lastly spirit of god the spirit of god enabling spiritual things this talking is hard it's harder than singing <laughs> wow um so in a sense then the church the gathered church the gathered people of god i just had this thought this week the gathered people of God then are, in a sense, a gift exchange. That awkward thing we do around Christmas time, and maybe other times of the year, but mainly around Christmas time, call it a cultural activity, phenomenon, office parties, family, extended family where we get together, and sometimes it's a game, sometimes it's not, it's a tradition. A gift exchange. And as I started looking into this, <laughs> as I Googled it, I realized, first, yes, we are a very dysfunctional people, and we are desperate for equipping around some gift exchanges. There are YouTube videos, there are articles, there are blogs, there are kits, there are templates, there are guides. I found one article, I love this, 28 fail-safe ideas for your next office gift exchange. 28, I can't have 20, I gotta have 28 ideas or I'm gonna And my absolute favorite, this, this is great. How to opt out of a gift exchange without looking like a Scrooge. At some point, the anxiety is too much. Like, I gotta get out, I can't do it, I can't go. Not gonna happen. I cannot go to that office gift exchange. So, this morning I wanted to offer my voice into the mix here of wisdom around gift exchanges and offer three surefire principles for ruining a gift exchange. We're gonna take the opposite track. Now, this might help you this coming Christmas with your office or your party or whatever, but, but really, hopefully, this is gonna guide us through this, this looking at the, the gift exchange that is the gathered church. Three surefire, you gotta have a good adjective, surefire, fail safe, three surefire principles for ruining a good gift exchange. Principle number one, make it a competition. 
You know when you've done this. You load up. You just know, man, at the family gathering this year, wait till grandma sees what I got her. The family, I'm going to nuke the room with how amazing this gift is. They will sing songs. They will tell their children stories of the year that grandma got this and cried and I won. And it was a vanilla scented candle or some garbage like that. But man, she is going to just... She is going, they will tell stories about me. It's not a competition. If you go into that, people will smell that on you and you've already, you've already lost the game. We cannot make it a competition. Now, look down at your text and uh, we're gonna reread part of this. And when I say same, when I say the word same, I want you to say same back loud. Let's try it. Same. Same. All right, let's read here in first in uh, chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gift, but the same, same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same. same. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same, same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit of utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same, same. spirit. To another the faith by the same. same. Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Ah, Simon says. To another, the working of the miracles. To another, the prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between the spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Same. spirit. You know what? I'm not a smart man, but I think I get what God is saying in his word here. God is the source. Sometimes Bible study is easy. God makes it very plain for us. Praise the Lord for the grace of that. But I... He is the source, right? He is empowering the gifts. The distribution is according to his will and his will alone. That means that the gifts are on level grounds. The gifts are flattened. No matter what it is, no matter what's your gift, the gifts are on equal ground. There's no tiers. There's no hierarchy. There's no pyramid scheme. The gifts are equal. Because if he decides and he's the source... And we don't earn it, to say it another way, if we don't earn it and we don't deserve it, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like grace at work. We don't earn, we don't deserve. He decides, he empowers, he's the source. It is by him and him alone. The picture of gifts is not, I don't know why I think this, but we're not the Avengers. We're not these innately superpowered people coming together to form a greater team. No, actually, I think this is the better picture. Little kids giving gifts. Now, just think about this. If you got, if you got kids, nieces, nephews, up to a point, little kids giving gifts, they don't have the resources to get these gifts. They don't have money. They don't have a job. They don't have a car. They can't go get it. Listen, they can't, up to a point, they can't even decide what to get. They don't have the, the capacity. Let's get mom a shovel for Mother's Day. No. Uh, a, a Minecraft expansion pack. No, mom doesn't want that. I have, I have taken many a little girl into Charmin' Charlie's when they are two and three and four. They can't decide. They cannot even decide. So the picture is these little kids. And, and, and think about this too. It's not their money. And even me and Alicia, mom and dad, it's our money. And we're, they're using our money to, get, to buy these gifts. Does that change our delight in these gifts being given at all? No, absolutely not. And so it is with God. He empowers, he distributes, he decides. It's by him alone, his grace, his will, and he delights in it all the same, all the same. I know I've said this before. Augustine says this, that that the, the sinful self is the soul curved in on itself. And 
Listen, the, the thing that will set us free from the competition is really the gospel, the gospel of grace. The beauty of the gospel is our sin given to him, his righteousness imparted to us, and he liberates the captive. We are therefore, that was the only way it was ever going to work, that if there's any hint of earning or quid pro quo or bartering in this thing, then as fallen people, we're going to drift to that every time. But the gospel of grace kills competition. We don't have to earn or deserve anything. It's all by grace. Grace kills the competition. And as Jesus said in Matthew 20, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. You see, the whole point of the gift exchange is that we are slowly being made in the likeness of the ultimate giver, the only one who deserved to be served and could have and is served, but could have just demanded to be served. But instead, what does he do? He gives his life away. Grace kills the competition. Principle number two, how to ruin a perfectly good gift exchange. Ignore the rules. Now, I don't know about you. Um, I've been to some gift exchanges where the first 15 minutes were like a session of Congress. There's amendments. There's rules. How many times must it, especially those white elephant, uh, Yankee swap, uh, dirty Santa, secret Santa, all these Santa. Like, there's like, you got to get the rules straight. How many times can I, can I be traded? How many times can it be out? How many times? Wrong? And I was like, man, there's like amendments and filibusters going on just at this gift exchange. But my favorite is the spending limit. Oh, this is really good. You got to be clear. Is it a max of $25? Is it around $25? And let me tell you, there's one type of person in particular who's going to be chaos in this every single time. They are devious. They are gift exchange anarchists, and you can't trust them. And that's grandparents. <laughs> if there's a grandparent in the room, you, you, you can't control them. You can only hope to contain them. The limit was $20. You bought them a pony. What? Ignore the rules. Now, the gift exchange. There are guidelines. There are boundaries for the gathered church. There are rules, exhortations, commands regarding spiritual gifts and gift exchange of the church that we want to heed, but we also don't want to add to. We don't want to invoke some neo-Phariseeism on, 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 on the gathered church. And really, as we launch into this section of 1 Corinthians, we're just wetting our whistle this morning. This is just setting the foundation for weeks to come because for the next few weeks, it's going to be a whole lot of boundaries and guidelines regarding uh, the, the gathered church and gifts. But I, I put together just a sample of seven. I stopped at seven because, of course, seven is a great biblical number. But looking ahead and looking at this one, here's just a sampling of, 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 of some of the rules and guidelines around gifting. Number one, the gifts are a means to an end. You lose the end... Doesn't matter what the means are. The end is that the church be built, the church be strengthened, believers are grown in their faith, said another way, cultivated, connected followers of Christ. We didn't just make that up. That's the end. Number two, the gifts are not a test for maturity. Not a test for spiritual maturity. We already covered that. Number three, the gifts are not imposed on people. If he decides, if he empowers, if it is by grace and grace alone, then we don't impose these on people, but we do recognize. They're not chosen, but they are recognized. And here's a hint. Gifts will never be recognized unless they're being used. Think about that. You got to be in motion out there trying the thing, doing the thing for the body of Christ to recognize, oh, you have a gifting in this area, but they're not imposed. Number four, this is a big one. 
Doctrine is never defined by abuse of doctrine. There's a, there's a Latin phrase, abusus non tollet usum, which means abuse does not prescribe non-use. Now, there's a lot of nuances and, and different practices in Christianity around gifting. But I think across the board of, of biblically faithful, theologically thoughtful, gospel-centered churches, uh, across the board, I think everyone would realize that in this area that there's uh, some obvious abuse and twisting going on of this doctrine. But we don't want to define doctrine just by how we see it being abused. We want to define doctrine by the Bible. We don't want to be reactionary. We want to be biblical. Biblical. And I love what our, our, our I think Monty, one of our elders says here, we are, we, we are open but cautious. We are open because we believe that's, we interpret the Bible of God that we should be open, but we are cautious because we interpret culture going on around us that we need to be cautious. We see what's going on. More about that in the coming weeks for sure. Number, uh, number five, chaos is never okay. God is a God of order. You're going to see this come up again and again uh, throughout 1 Corinthians as we talk about the gathered church and gifting. Number six, love is the ultimate rule. When, uh, when Peter's talking about gifts in 1 Peter 4, he says this really clearly. Above all, seek to love one another earnestly. And even as we get ahead to 1 Corinthians 13, here's a little, here's a little something. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. The context is a romantic love. It's the gifting of the church, this church gathered serving one another. Love is the ultimate rule. And finally, the Spirit of God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work. The Holy Spirit has not retired after Pentecost. The Spirit of God is at work in his church, among his people, absolutely. You know what? There's a lot we won't get into today, but I, I just see most of this discussion around this revolves around not that God is at work, not that the Spirit of God is at work, but how the Spirit of God is at work. Um, that's mainly kind of how the discussion plays out, again, in gospel-centered, biblically faithful churches. And our list this morning, looking down in your passage, this list, this isn't exhaustive. There's other lists in Romans 12 and Ephesians and 1 Peter. So there's no exhaustive list. It's just representative. It's just samplings. But let's just look through this list here real quick. First, we got knowledge. Okay, don't you just believe and know that there are, God is gifting the church and people who can teach and equip in knowledge around his word? Oh, yes. How about wisdom? Next up, wisdom. You know, we have a marriage mentorship ministry here where, where these couples are being trained, older couples who are, are a little bit further down the road, a little bit wiser, they're being trained up to bring another couple under them to mentor them. Isn't that just what we're praying, that the Spirit of God would work in that to impart a little wisdom to someone who isn't as far down the road in their marriage? Absolutely, that's our prayer. Next, faith. Faith. In this church alone, you know, I, I can think of three, four, five families right now. Maybe it's a good place. Maybe it's a hard place. I bet you can too, where you just look at them and maybe they're going halfway around the world for missions. Maybe they're just going to Nashville every week in, in the halls of a hospital, but God is giving them a measure of faith to trust them where you look at it and think, man, God is working in their life and giving them a joy and a trust that is really special for what they're walking in. Absolutely. And man, does that minister 
to me and my faith and the church. Discerning. Oh, I do pray that God is giving the gift of discerning between motives and truth and error in the church, that especially in this biblical and theological slip and slide of a biblical culture we have right now. Absolutely. Prophecy. Prophecy. This is, a, this, is a, this, is a, this is something. So when we think about prophecy a lot of times, we're thinking about future telling, oh, off in the future. You know what? Such a small percentage of biblical prophecy deals with the future. I think it's 3%. Don't quote me on that. That number comes to mind. It's so small. But you know, the function of prophecy in the Bible was people calling God's people to faithfulness, calling God's people to trust him, calling people out of sin, calling people to repentance. And I think there's, a, there's an inkling of that when Paul says, I desire that you all prophesy, prophesy, that the people of God would constantly be doing that, that the spirit of God would be working that out in the church. Oh, I hope so. Oh, I think so. Oh, we pray that would be it. Absolutely. Miracles and healing. Miracles and healing. You know, there is... Uh, this is a much bigger discussion than one passage, but there's a spectrum of practice around gifts. You've heard the words maybe continuationism and cessationism, uh, you know, how the, the, these gifts are operating or not operating in people and in the church now, how it's practiced out. There's different nuances of that. And I know who you guys study. I see it on Facebook and who you're reading, and who you're studying. I know the commentators that Jeff and Monty and I use and, and Phil use in First Corinthians. There's nuances and distinctions of practice all over the place, all over the place. But I tell you what, it, it, you, across the board, no one would say God does not work miraculously anymore. No one would say that God does not heal anymore. That's almost untenable. I, I kind of agree with John Piper. You can't harmonize that with prayer. You can't harmonize that with the book of James that, that's just stopped completely around the world. And I tell you, uh, a book that I just devoured while I'm studying this passage over the last month or so, uh, Sean McDowell, the professor of apologetics at Biola University, um, tweeted out one day, he said, wow, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Oh, his name escapes me. What's the case? Case, thank you, Lee Strobel. Case for Lee Strobel has a new book out. He, he put out on social media, Sean McDowell. He said, Lee Strobel has a new book out, Case for Miracles. I thought, well, I'll pick that up. So I ordered that incredibly encouraging, incredibly encouraging. Highly recommend that book as Lee brings his, his usual uh, research and analytical self to that topic. And let me tell you, it, it encouraged the socks off. The way God now you see, and I've got actually a two book set in my office by Craig Keener that is like three million words. The bibliography on the thing is 170 pages documenting and researching and peer reviewed research of God at work around the world miraculously. And you know, J.P. Moreland in his book, Kingdom Triangle, says that probably 70%, J.P. Moreland has just named one of the 50 best philosophers in America, not Christian philosophers, just philosophers. He said, look, 70% of the third world spread of the gospel is accompanied by miracles and healing. 70%. In fact, some of you remember uh, Nabil Qureshi, Ravi Zacharias's. Uh, protege who just passed, passed away last year, a Muslim who came to faith via a dream. As you look at it, man, this, this was amazing to read about, but in the, just one example in the, in the world of Islam and evangelism there, what missionaries are, are doing as one of their strategies is just taking out an ad in the paper saying, hey, if you've had a dream about the God man who loves you, call us, because they're seeing the Islam nation having so many dreams and people dreaming of Jesus Christ that all they got to do is take out an ad in the paper and just start answering the phone. 
Yes, we can help you. We can tell you more about that God-man. God is still at work. And finally, tongues. Tongues. Let me tell you something about tongues. Our teaching pastors, Jeff and Monty, are going to speak to this issue over the next few weeks. So you're going to want to come back. You're going to want to come back because they're going to crush it. It's going to be unbelievable. And uh, you're going to get all the tongues you want. So knock stuff out. How's that for a teaser? The third principle, how to ruin your gift exchange. Don't show up. This seems like a no-brainer, but if nobody shows up, there is no gift exchange. Down there in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good. The word there is simfero. And as you dig into the etymology and the meaning of this Greek word, there's not a better word in the, in the Bible that pulls together, that just says together is better. It means to gather, to be better. Together is better. And look, but... But we got to look in the mirror on this one in our society, in our culture, in, in our church. We got to look in the mirror because I think this might be a bit of a cultural snare for us, uh, big church and small church. Do we really believe that? Do we, we say it, but we who would profess a really high view of church live out, living out what would be a really low view of church. Dr. Craig Blomberg, himself a New Testament scholar, um, says this. All of Paul's emphasis on unity within diversity calls into question the behavior of growing numbers of Christians who claim to be religious, believe in God and even Christ, yet drop out of organized church life or at least fade to its periphery. In a land still heavily influenced by a heritage of rugged individualism, believers need to work ever harder to demonstrate that Christianity is not merely a personal religion, but a fundamentally corporate one. Hang on through this part. Even evangelical language for the conversion portrays this bias, a personal relationship with Christ. That is the necessary starting point, but we dare not stop until that relationship leads to intimate, interpersonal relationships with other Christians. Listen, I love my phone. I love that I can get 139, I counted, 139 versions of the Bible on my phone. Greek, Hebrew, you name it, Aramaic, English, 139. These resources, we live in a time, Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon would, would cry like a baby. They could see like what we could get just on our phone, the resources. And we need study. Study prepares us for community, as Bonhoeffer said. But study and individual study will never, ever begin to replace begin to replace the Spirit of God in wor working in the gathered people of God. Never. God is working uniquely and powerfully in the gathered people of the church. And if God gives it, if he provides it, if he implements it, you and I need it. I need it. I need it. The Spirit of God at work in the people of God. It may look ordinary, ordinary. It may look extraordinary, but we will never know. It's for, our, it's for our good, your good that we come together, my good that we come together. And we may never know sometimes how the Spirit of God uses, does good with that gift, empowered by him, distributed by him, that what good will come of that gift that, so to speak, leaves our hands last. Does that make sense? I wanna tell you a story about a gift. And even as I do, my heart's tender to tell it because sometimes when you're, you hear a story, you hear other people's story, you're not in the same place. 
Sometimes it can be hard to listen to other people's stories. That's definitely not my heart this morning. Um, so I pray you'd be gracious with me just to listen a moment because ultimately this story isn't about us anyway. Um, yeah, this story isn't about us anyway. A few years ago, uh, when Alicia and I were 42, um, 42 years old, that was a few years ago now. At 42, we went through this season where Alicia is just, was just sick as a dog. Just sick as a dog. Wasn't getting better, cold, flu, whatever. So she just can't get over it. So she heads off to the doctor to see what's going on. And the thing that she can't get over is being 15 weeks pregnant. Y'all, 42. And uh, Abraham came to mind so many times. Um, so we make an appointment with our doctor that delivered our, our two other kids and the, the obligatory uh, uh, appointment, get in there. And uh, our doctor was, is this really wiry older gentleman uh, always cracking jokes, always with a smile. He sees me in the waiting room, sticks his head in there, points at me, hollers, ha ha, you still got it. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you, doctor. Okay. So we go through the first round of scans and ultrasounds and, and we're waiting for him to come in and debrief us and he comes in the room and when he comes in, it's immediately obvious the jokes and the smiling is done. And here's a guy wrestling to to gather his words, it's just quiet. And I don't remember all the words, I don't remember all the jargon, but it all pointed to, to, to this idea that this baby might not survive pregnancy and wouldn't survive outside the womb. We were stunned, we were shocked, we were already limping through life it felt like we had just had our youngest at the time diagnosed with diabetes and as mom and dad we were learning what the heck to do with that and and we already felt like we were we were broken and now to be kicked while we're down our doctor he told us I can't help you I got to send you somewhere else and he grabbed our hands and prayed for us and sent us on our way we got into the car went down the elevator got in the car stunned and just sobbed sobbed You know, it's in those times you just, you kind of have to revert back to the basics of what you know and what you believe. So what do we do except pray our guts out? We call on the people of God to pray. You take James really seriously and you call on the elders to pray. And that's what we do. We're going to the doctor a lot. Every two weeks, every week, twice a week. Burning up that deductible. And you keep going and we just kept walking and we kept praying and we we're gathering people to pray and we have people in our living room say, please pray. And what else do you do? And I remember going over there. I mean, the, going to the doctor was like one of those oil change places where you go in with your, to get your oil changed and they point out 50 things wrong and they're surprised your car isn't just on fire going down the highway. That's what it felt like. And I remember leaving there thinking just one dang time, I'd like to leave this place with everything okay. At one point, they even, at one point our doctors even brought up Terminating the pregnancy. But in a few months, Eliza Joy's born. Eliza Joy's born. She's part raccoon and part monkey. <laughs> She's two years old now. She had surgery back in November to remove something from her neck that was described to us as leftovers from something that probably resolved itself in the womb. I don't know what to do with that. 
That's just a story. And you know what? All our stories haven't turned out that way. We have an ornament we hang on our Christmas tree every year of a, a baby we lost in pregnancy. We have a sister, Alicia's sister, who died 11 years ago. Man, we fought like crazy for her. Prayed our guts out over her. And she died way too young. But this is our story for this little season, this little part. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know. I don't know. But give God glory. Tell the story, give God the glory. But that's not the gift I wanted to tell you about. That's not even yet the part of the story I really wanted you to hear. Because see, a few years before that, there's another little girl. And this little girl's family got sad news. While she's in the womb, her family gets the sad news. And it does come about. It comes about that she's born and she passes away the same day. I got to see her. I got to uh, see her mom and dad hold her at her funeral. I'll never forget that. I don't want to forget that, that sweet little thing. You see, years later, that mom and dad would sit with us. I remember that mom sitting in our living room while we tell our story of our little roller coaster pregnancy. And she sat with us. And they sat with us and they walked with us and they prayed with us and encouraged us. And after every scan, that mom would check in with Alicia and encourage her and give her hope and pray with her. I don't know what to do with that except say what a gracious gift that was to two hurting people. How do you explain that? So many walked with us at that time. So many people served us. So many people brought us meals. So many people kept our kids while we'd go to appointments. And let me tell you, the grace of God is never more beautiful than in free babysitting. <laughs> beautiful. When I asked our student pastor, Benji, who was up here just a minute ago, if he and Rebecca minded if I shared the story of their daughter, Gracie, and what they meant to us, he, he answered with a one-line sermon, basically. He said, you know, if we were able to do that for you, if we were able to give that gift for you, it's because so many did that for us. You got gifts to give, people of God. Church, you got gifts to give. At the top of your outline, I left it blank by the title. If you wrote in Holy Spirit, I don't blame you. I was a little deceptive. But I meant for you by the end of this message to write your name in there because you got gifts to give. Empowered by God, given by God, distributed according to his will, but leaving your hands last as it were, you got gifts to give. And as we come to So What, where we respond and ask God to, how would we apply this truth this morning? I just would pray that our lives, in fact, I will pray. Pray with me. God, I pray that our